Do you all remember the Nintendo 64 game, or maybe it was a Super Nintendo, Clay Fighter? No. Oh. I never played Nintendo. Yeah. Game. Well, I was homeschooled. Clay Fighter. Clay, Clay Fighter. When I hear Leitare Sunday, that's the song that gets stuck in my head. Leitare. Lay, Leitare. All right. So if you're just tuning in, we are serious about our faith. This is 10,000 <laughs> Places. <laughs> We're your hosts. My name is Alex Giltner. I am a theologian and a philosopher. I'm Lewis Pearson. I am a philosopher. And I'm Justin Aquila. I'm a campus minister. So he's kind of like the drummer of the group. (laughs) He kind of just hangs out (laughs) while we do the real stuff. I'm just kidding. Drummers. My dad's a drummer, so actually it's super important. Leitare Sunday. That's what we're talking about. Why is it called Leitare Sunday? Hmm. It is Latari Sunday because it is the first line of the antiphon, the entrance antiphon, for the fourth Sunday of Lent, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 66. Rejoice, Jerusalem, and all who love her. Be joyful, all who were in mourning. Exalt and be satisfied at her consoling breast. That's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't so, hear Latari. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, we should turn to our... Uh, Resident Latin teacher, Dr. Giltner. Well, okay. First of all, letare is a imperative. It's a command. And it means to be happy, be glad, rejoice. It's similar to gaudete, which also means rejoice. Letare, it's the same as, uh, so Letizia Moris, Letizia there is the same, not to bring up anything controversial, but the same um, uh, root. And it means something like, be glad, be happy, rejoice. So I love that it's an imperative also. Yeah. That it makes it clear that many of these things that we see purely as emotional, passional that we suffer are actually under the control of our will. So there's an act of the will here. And as a father, I like this as well when I tell my kids, right? Be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will say this is interesting because I think that one of the things that I think is really key to the entire Christian idea of happiness and joy is that joy and happiness are not feelings. Mm -hmm. They're not emotions. One can be super unhappy or sad or whatever and still have joy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe the difference here would be between uh, eudaimonia and would it be charis is grace? Yeah. What's joy? Uh, well, makariotes is uh, like blessedness. Right. Yeah. Like that's what in the Beatitudes, that's what he's saying. Yeah. If you hear happy the man, that is a bad translation. It's blessed is the man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why they're called the Beatitudes is because in Latin that would be beatus, which can actually mean like be happy, rejoice, but it really does mean blessed. Yeah. But it's more, um, it's, it's a disposition. It's the act of the intellect and the will. It's not merely, said, I said passion, meaning like to suffer, right? It feels right. like when you're under the passion of anger or sadness, it feels like you're not in control. You're in a river that's sweeping you away. Mm-hmm. That's often how we think about happiness as a kind of feeling. So maybe right. that's like, it's not a feeling when we say feel happy. That's not what Leitare means. And I mean, this fits really in the context of what Isaiah is doing. I mean, Isaiah is speaking to the captives in exile. He's saying, Babylon just destroyed you and destroyed your temple, and Jerusalem is no longer its own nation, it's no longer a kingdom. And this exile theme is one of the dominant themes that color the entire context of the gospel. And the notion of exile is still a controlling metaphor used by 
many groups of Jews to talk about where they are in like the path of history. Not to, you know, hog the mic, but just a little bit of background. So the glorious idea of the kingdom of Israel comes from David and Solomon, that they were this great kingdom. And they kind of, they never were a really great kingdom, okay? They, they were what's sometimes called a mini empire. They kind of popped up. So there was this like a social economic collapse called the Bronze Age Collapse, and it led to this kind of dark ages. It happened in 1177 BC. And historians argue about what really caused it, and it's probably a number of factors, but this is when the Sea Peoples come in, and basically everybody kind of falls into their own little place and licks their wounds and is trying to figure out what's going on. The Hittites and the Egyptians have just had the end of some major conflicts, but they're not really fighting anymore. Assyria and Babylon, they're kind of in their own place doing their own thing. And so what rises is these little mini empires that come up, and Israel is the fourth one probably to rise, and it looks like the Arameans out of Damascus were the, probably the ones coming next. They were starting to come up, but then the Assyrians had finally figured out their business, conquered all of Mesopotamia, and came marching through. And so during this time, David and Solomon pop up, and then after Solomon, his son Rehoboam, there is a civil war and a split into northern Israel and southern Jerusalem and Judea, because the main tribe was Judah. And then there were the Benjamins and the Levites down south. And then there were the other 10 tribes up north. So fast forward a few hundred years, Israel, northern Israel was destroyed. Its capital was in Samaria and it was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And that was the first diaspora. And that's where the lost 10 tribes of Israel, like they become the Samaritans, the ones that stick around, but the rest of them are spread out. And then they just kind of diffuse within the culture and disappear. They take on the cultures and the religions and stuff of the people around them and just kind of uh, are no more. Judah hangs on. There's a great map I show this to my students, which shows them during the Assyrian and then the beginning of the Babylonian Empire. And it's all like red from Assyria. And then there's this little green spot right middle. And that's Judah just hanging on for dear life. Egypt's gone. It's all that. And eventually they uh, make the Babylonians mad and the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem. Yeah. And so you mentioned this exile mindset I, continues to this day. Christians in, inherit this in a way. We're at home, but we're not home. But it's relevant to Laetare Sunday because Laetare Sunday is the Sunday in the middle of Lent, right? in the middle of the exile, this time of a spiritual and symbolic time in the desert. Well, right? yeah, because the Bible, the Bi scripture kind of keeps opening up its themes. And this is what Jesus does. He says, I'm not here just to release the captives and liberty to the captives in exile in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the, the heavenly city, but it's not just the Jews. It's everybody because we are exiled from Eden. That's the prayer in the rosary, right? You know, poor banished children of Eve. Eve. Yeah. That's the exile. We are in exile here. And that's why the Christians took on this, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Yeah. Yeah. So reading this in the liturgy is all Catholics should, because really our formation, if you're looking for the formation of your Christian life, it should always be toward the liturgy but also from the liturgy. And so this background that Alex is going into is just taken from the, the church proposed a short little verse for the celebration of the fourth Sunday of Lent. And so how then do we now conform our lives as we're approaching and celebrating this fourth Sunday of Lent, halfway through Lent? How do we conform ourselves to this reality? Well, I was going to—so you're the cradle Catholic, right? Yeah. I was going to say as the revert, right? I, I went to Catholic school growing up, but I didn't have a faith that I practiced at home. I, I put this, so my, my mother wasn't, she's not Christian. 
And uh, I could have asked to go to church, but I didn't. So I didn't really know what it looked like to live in and be formed by the liturgical calendar until I was an adult revert. And all the formation, good and bad, I had coming in has colored that. Mm -hmm. So I'd say for me, when I get to Leitare Sunday, the idea I think is supposed to be rejoice. We're, we're halfway to the promised time of Easter, right? But for me, as someone who's always looking at deadlines and thinking, I don't have enough time, I've wasted half of Lent, Leitare Sunday sometimes for me feels like, oh no, I only have half my time left. And I'm pretty sure that's not what the church has in mind. How did this play out for you growing up? That's a good question. Um, well, first of all, if the priest, and there's a great debate about this, right? But if the priest wore pink, it always stood out like rose, uh, or rose yeah, depending on yeah. how yeah, sensitive you are about, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Advent is a time of penance also, and right. there's that Gaudet, I wonder if they're- In anyway, preparation, sorry, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm interrupting, yeah. my apologies. Right, so the there was an indication, I remember as a kid, of, okay, something's different about this Sunday because mm. the priest is wearing a different color. But it also was felt like kind of halftime in Lent. Mm. All right, maybe we- Go to the locker room? Somehow, Time yeah. Lady Gaga so, yeah. to come out <laughs> right, and do right. a halftime special. <laughs> Lent's almost over. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Don't cut that. You should change your profession. I know, right? Yes. I know. So many things I could have been. Yeah, it's so the Vatican stipend that keeps me in theology. <laughs> right, 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 right. But did it feel because I mean the problem is if you're just I go to church on Sunday Catholic, but I don't really think about Jesus otherwise. Like, does it feel different? Or I mean, it, it may be family to family. What was it like in your experience? Yeah, I don't remember any particular traditions around it. Uh, I remember as a kid having this question of, does this mean like the fast is relaxed this week? Mm. <laughs> you know, my Lenten observances mm -hmm. are relaxed. Of course, as I came to adults, I don't realize that. I actually think my understanding of Leitari Sunday is it's not a relaxation of the fast. It's finding that rejoicing, that imperative to rejoice within your Lenten observances because the time of the Savior's saving work is drawing closer. Yeah. And I, so for me, coming to Lent much later in life, I mean, I think, you know, my grandpa was Catholic, he was Polish Catholic, and, um, you know, he would do Lent, and, and a few of my, like, aunts wouldn't do Lent, um, but most of them don't. And most of them weren't practicing by the time I was an adult. But, you know, I knew about it, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I – even before I became Catholic, I started doing Lent. I remember the first time I did Lent, I was, you know, I was an overachiever, so it was like no sweets, no meat, no alcohol, the whole time, just on Sundays could I relax that. And so Sunday would come around and like you'd come in the door and I'd be this blob on the ground, <laughs> just like surrounded by cake and meat and alcohol, just like, you know, praise Jesus. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so but what it did, what I noticed immediately coming from like never having done Lent to this to this observance and doing it so intensely this first time was it trained me to look forward to Sunday. Mm. And this is the formation piece, right? It's training me to remember. And so this is why I know like we talk a lot about how the Orthodox kind of make us look like some, some punks <laughs> uh, with their fast. Their fast, if you don't know, listeners, is 40 days of like no meat, no dairy. Uh, it's like vegan. Yeah. No oil, I think, or something like that. Um, no eggs. No eggs. It's super, like you can eat bread and drink water, basically. And they do it for 40 uninterrupted days. Um, whereas ours, 40 days, but with the Sundays in between. And while I get that that's in a way much harder, and I get, I'm not bashing them. 
What I'm saying is there's something to be said for the way we do it, which is every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Mm. Easter is the great celebration. But every Sunday is a that's why there cannot be fasting on Sundays. Yeah. Because it is the resurrection. The weekly rhythm is synchronized with the annual exactly. rhythm. And so Lent, yeah. Lent helps us to form us habitually into looking forward to Sunday because that's the day. And so, you know, so much of the Christian life and tradition is we toil so that we may rest. We toil that we so we may rest. And so I think what Laetare does is this kind of on a bigger scale. You know, it is Lent's almost over, but also the other thing I would add to that, and this gets to what you were saying, Justin, which is like finding rejoicing in, in the penance that we're doing stuff is Lent is also on the way to the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why mm-hmm. we do this, the stations of the cross. It's such right. a popular devotion. We did that last night and it, I can't, it is so powerful because I'm just thinking like, oh man, spring's coming, Easter's coming. Like I hadn't really thought, I hadn't really entered into Lent, I think, until last night when we did the stations of the cross and it was just like. All right, here yeah. we go. I thought, so this just occurred as you were talking, you're like an expecting father. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, when you said- I'm expecting a baby. That's what I'm expecting, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, not, yeah. That not a giraffe. It, it's clear in Lent that Laetare happens in the middle. It's harder to see in Advent that Gaudete is in the middle because it's the third out of fourth. So it feels like it's three quarters, but it's the beginning of the third week. So there's really two weeks and then two weeks. So it mm-hmm. actually is in the middle, right? Right. And it's halfway to- the nativity. But you said in, in Lent, we're halfway to the cross, which is interesting. It occurred to me that- And the resurrection, of course, but- But through the cross, yeah. Right. That's the point, right? In Advent, this is halfway to the time because Rome has called a census. An expecting mother has to travel mm. on foot or maybe on donkey and then deliver in a strange place, just the pain of delivery for most. I don't know about Mary. That's, that's an open question about what, whether sure. Mary had the, those right. experiences. But generally speaking, you don't get the baby without the delivery. You, you don't get the resurrection without the cross. And in both situations, you're getting a similar kind of story. But we, we've talked about this before because you were saying, you know, as you're expecting, you're excited, but also there's some fear there. Like, what does this look like? And I shared with you when we were expecting our first, Angela would have these dreams that, well, how does the baby get out? Like, you know, I know intellectually, but. I can't see myself past this wall where the baby's in the womb and then the baby's not going to be in the womb. But I've never experienced this and everyone talks about it like this horrible thing. And she just couldn't even conceive of it as an experience. And I think about that as a kind of cross. You can't even conceive. What does it mean for a man to be raised from the dead? What does it mean to be delivered from this pain that you know must come? There's no avoiding it, right? Yeah, It's got to happen. And yet when it happens joy. Mm. And to bring that back to the the exile, I would imagine the people in exile, the, the Jews in exile, Israel in exile, would have not quite known what that would have looked like or when exactly that was coming. And so when the prophets start to prophesy the return, yeah, what it was, what must that have been like? I'm sure a, a degree of cynicism. Oh, uh, sure. Mm. I'm sure a degree, uh, and this is why the imperative to hope and rejoice was probably a challenge that required a grace. Yeah. And then you think about it, like, again, because, like, everything in Christianity and in Scripture is always, like, smaller microcosms of bigger things. And all of this, of course, is, like, the verse that comes to my mind is, is Romans chapter 8, 
chapter seven or chapter eight, I think it's eight, that the creation was subjected to futility and it groans waiting for the sons of glory to be revealed. I mean, Paul in his mind has exile in mind. He has that in mind. But the exile of humanity itself, that even creation is groaning, waiting for Christ's return. The reason that I thought of that too is partly because I think that that gets at like what we're doing in Lent. We're groaning, waiting for the return, which means there's both a positive and negative element to what we're doing. Yes, we're suffering. Yes, we're toiling. But like rest is coming. And everybody knows, you know, I worked like three 12 to 14 hour days this week. And I remember on the second one or the third, I'd come home and go to bed, basically. <laughs> and I remember getting in bed and then the euphoria of being in bed like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> why don't I know how great this is every night, right? And just like my whole body was responding like part of the glory of rest is rest from the difficulty of the toil. But like for Paul, then this is the exile that everything is going through. And Lent is part of that as well. We are groaning with creation. And Paul's whole journey is in part trying to explain to people that when our hope came, it did look nothing like we expected. Even those who expected the Messiah and messianic expectations were varied. And they even argued with each other. And like the Essenes expected two different messiahs, a priest and a king. And so there were all these different expectations, but what nobody thought, I mean, the biggest expectation was some kind of conqueror, Mm -hmm. right? But what nobody thought was some backwater preacher gets crucified by the powers that be and dies. No one thought that. And then no one thought raised from the dead. And so Paul's big message is, this was the thing. This was it. This was the hope. And then it's going to happen again. Yeah. I think also, you know, the, the lectionary and the liturgical calendar, it's not that it follows the seasons. It's that God has created the seasons to prepare us to understand, oh, right? yes. This is one of the tropes that atheists often push that, well, it's just old nature cults that Christianity took over. But no, God has set things up in such a way that mm. we are prepared and primed for the surprise of spring that no one expects after the desolation of winter. The liturgical calendar is the grace building on that nature that God has already put in, not, not that Christians, you know, co-opted from a nature cult. No. I was, uh, had this dramatic experience two and, two and a half years, almost three years ago now, when my family moved from Houston, Texas to Fort Wayne mm. and been absent for about seven winters from the experience of winter, right? I mean, Texas got hit hard this year, but that, that's a vast anomaly. Yeah, I lived in Texas for a I, I love the South where it's almost perpetually summer. Right, but right. Yeah, keep going. So I remember sitting there watching nature come back to life around March, April, and being utterly shocked by plants that suddenly were reemerging from the ground in my front yard, in my backyard, that disappeared, Mm. right, months before. You'd think like, oh, yeah, I remember what it's like experientially from four months ago, but I don't actually, Hmm. for whatever reason. I realized how much I spiritually needed to experience winter so I could experience spring again. It aligns, of course, with Lent uh, and that renewal that comes with the resurrection. Yeah. So there was a reading that both of us encountered, Lewis and I, in a meeting. Someone read from a homily of Chrysostom. And in the homily, you know, John Chrysostom is saying, how do you, you know, those of you who don't believe in a resurrection, 
Which is funny to me, just as an aside, because everyone's like, oh, those ancient people believed in all kinds of dumb things. No, six <laughs> centuries into Christianity, people were still saying, resurrections don't happen, bruh. They were face-to-face with death in a way that we are not. Never, it right? Would be like, a, it, easy, it's easier for us today to think in resurrection with our Marvel Universe junk. You know, it's right, like, right. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like, I, I was just talking to my students about Genesis. We're in Genesis. And, you know, ancient people didn't think snakes talked, guys. <laughs> they are farmers and shepherds. They know about snakes. They know this is no normal snake, right? There were people that doubted. And he says, how can you doubt it? God puts to death and then raises to life the entire creation every fallen winter, spring and summer. He does it right in front of your eyes, and these all point to the resurrection. Where were you before you were born? This is my favorite part. You weren't there. If God brought you to life in the womb, how do you doubt that he could bring you to life from death? All of these cycles. And so like people... You know, we talk a lot about Catholic identity on this podcast, and rightfully so, because that's what being Catholic is about. It's this formation of identity, and everything we do is ordered toward it, including the calendar. We're calendrical because we are, and there's no accident that Lent is in the end of winter and leads into the beginning of summer. And we'll talk about this, I think, when we get to the episode on the Triduum, but like that great reading where something's in the air. Something's happened. Everything's different. Is that the Holy Saturday? Saturday. Yeah. Oh. Office of readings. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Anyway. Being being seasonal, right? And having our liturgy do that for us. I think just to talk about why Laetare Sunday is this thing that we do and why Lent in the first place is a thing that we do is the lectionary makes us mindful of our reality, right? It, It tells us what things mean. Everyone lives through the seasons. But a Catholic is being given a weekly, at least, a weekly reminder of what these seasons mean and what they're doing for you and how you're supposed to be conforming yourself to Christ because of the seasons. It's not just annually. It's the entire season of preparation for Easter. It's the season of Easter, not just the day, right? Yeah. And then every day, in a sense, is a microcosm. And so we have these cycles within cycles. And I think the church, in giving us all of these nested cycles, is really telling us, wake up. This is what things mean. Amen. I mean, like, I think about Christmas. Why is Christmas there? And like, oh, they stole that. That was the Janus holiday, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, like, there's there's something to the fact that there are always seasons a part of religions, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there is a harvest festival. We didn't steal that. Everybody's been doing a harvest festival since there have been harvests because it's super exciting because, man, Got to get all that good, good food coming out the ground and stuff. But Christmas, yeah, it's it's. We finally know what it means, right? It's aligned with exactly. It's aligned with the solstice, absolutely. Of course, it is, or the equinox. Excuse me. Why? Because light has entered the world, and Christmas is right there at the point when the darkness and the light have switched, and now more light than darkness. The days are longer. The lights more than the darkness, and that keeps growing until, of course, the solstice where the light is at its greatest. And that's right around when Easter happens. This, yes, there are other religions who said, hey, we live in the same world with the same seasons. What do you know? Of course. This is what the ancient church would have called the seeds of the word, the semine verbi. Right. It's not that 
we're co-opting an ancient practice to serve our purposes in the Christian world. Right. We're saying, no, they actually maybe got something right. It's not the full truth or it's distorted. But now the revelation of Christ will we'll show you what these seeds really look like when they fully bloomed. Yep. And what? just a real quick, so this is like, to me, like when Lewis says that- C.S. Lewis? Uh, yes, yeah. says that um, myths are truth breathed through silver. Hmm. Or more importantly, when Tolkien says, in Christ- all myths come true. Yes. This is the key. And so what is Laetare Sunday commanding us to do? Not asking us to do, as you pointed out, as we pointed out with the imperative. Commanding us to do. It's to recognize what's really going on here. Yeah. It's pulling back the veil, reveal, and saying, here's what's really going on. No, you're not lost in exile. You're not just wandering in darkness and it never shall end. The promised land is real. And the light is around the corner. When, Justin, you said that even the pagans, and, and Alex, you're right, pointing out, these authors help us to see. The pagans see something because God has created things such that one can't help but see these things. In C.S. Lewis's Myth Became Fact, that little essay, he says, I'd be surprised if there were a pagan culture that didn't have myths that looked like everyone else's. Yeah. Because we all live in the same world made by the same God who's talking to us through his creation. But what occurred to me was when Paul writes the law written on your heart, yeah. typically what people see and it's there is ethics, right? You know what is good and bad. But I think what we see here is the law is written on your hearts in a deep flesh and bones way. It's not just ethical understanding of what counts as good or bad. It's how everything is ordered in a way that it's pointing to the creator and ultimately to Christ who we see manifesting our salvation. Yeah, I mean- Lewis is the one that made that kind of, you know, God-shaped whole thing kind of popular. And it gets kind of poo-pooed now because, like, it, maybe it's a little trite. Maybe it's a little schmaltzy. But, like, it's there. And I think and what you know, you're saying that just now, I just think about the Ecclesiastes. For man holds eternity within his heart, you know. For humans have eternity within our heart. We are meant for eternity. This is why nothing ultimately satisfies this is what penance is supposed to remind us, and penitential seasons are supposed to remind us. Chocolate cake is not going to satisfy me. I can keep eating it, and it will eventually never do anything. Mm. It, there is no eventually to chocolate cake. There's no eventually to all of these things, because none of them truly satisfy me. None of them truly, yes. You need a I bigger can, and bigger hit. Right, and, it's right. Not gonna... and I can get into bed, and it's amazing. But the next day, I got to wake up and do another 12-hour day. The cycle, what we are rejoicing is that eventually the cycle will end and rest will become the reality. And that is the gospel. That's the coming of Jesus. And first, he and so we got to die to be raised to the new life. But rest is coming. I want to add as we start to wrap this up, I want to add one other dimension, one other layer, if you will, to the celebration of Lent and, and Laetare Sunday, and that is it's not an accident that the church invites the catechumenate, those who are coming into the church to be baptized for the first time, to come into the Here church Here goes Justin with season. the liturgy again. <laughs> oh my gosh. I will so there's something in the liturgy about this, huh, Justin? <laughs> I will stand on this pulpit until pastors do RCA amen. properly. In all, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, amen. I love it. I love it. I'm just being silly. I know. So at this point in the year, our catechumens, those seeking baptism, 
have been recognized by the church, affirmed by the church and the local bishop as elect, the ones chosen by God for Mm -hmm. baptism. The right of election really draws that out for us. And they're now preparing through a series of rites called scrutinies on the third, fourth, and fifth Sunday of Lent. And if your pastor doesn't do this, you should ask him why not. But (laughs) it's an invitation for us as we watch, because the Christian faith is reinforced by mutual witness. Sure. We're watching these people undergo these steps of conversion, so to speak, and it's our invitation to enter into that experience of conversion. So even their witness points to us as a new life and renewal in our own baptism as they're about to receive baptism for the first time. That's why we trot them out or should be trotting them out every third, fourth, and fifth Sunday and for rites of sending and rites of welcome and so on and so forth, because we're meant to be inspired by them to relook at our baptismal promise. And then talk about one of you know my uh, soapboxes, which I think is shared by actually everybody here, and hopefully you too, listener, is the mystagogy continues. Yes. We all switch from the Nicene Creed to the Apostles' Creed through the season of Easter. Why? Because we're renewing our baptism, yep. and we are re-entering into mystagogy and learning again what the mysteries of the Apostles' Creed mean, or we're supposed to be. Right. And then a lot of parishes will continue the call and response of the creed throughout the season of Easter, which I think is highly appropriate yes. because we are again and again reaffirming the creed that we were baptized in. And part of that is, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Rejoice, Jerusalem. The resurrection is coming. You know, it is such a Interesting. So like Game of Thrones, I don't know if it's still the thing it was. Probably not. But everybody walked around for a while saying winter is coming. Right. I never watched the show. (laughs) I saw all the memes. (laughs) Right. I saw the memes. I never watched the show. I started the first book, beautifully written, but like part of the problem is like the nihilism of it. I just can't stomach that like I used to be able to when I was younger. Maybe I'll return to my way, but I won't. But like I remember like this became this phrase, winter is coming, winter is coming, winter is coming, you know? And that's one way to look at the world. Mm. But it's not the ultimate way. Yeah. Because, well, the line the witch in the wardrobe, right? Right. Winter's coming. Yeah. Always winter, never Christmas. Yeah. But then Father Christmas shows up. Christmas is here. And then everything starts to melt. To melt. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so good. The resurrection is coming. It's coming. I think there's a, the Bishop of Brownsville, Bishop Dan Flores, he speaks about preaching the kingdom of God in the negative. And he, he's very clever in this way. And so when he was preaching at confirmations for a while, he was saying, the kingdom of God is not like the Game of Thrones. Yes. <laughs> it's so right, right? I mean, if you want to contrast Game of Thrones and C.S. Lewis, <laughs> the kingdom of God is something more akin to Aslan entering oh, Narnia yeah. on the line, the Witch of the Wardrobes. And the absolute opposite of it is the Game of Thrones. Yeah, that winter so, is coming and staying. Right. And... Here's Revelation, right? You know, yeah, okay. If you want to think that it's about Apache helicopters and all kinds of goofy stuff like that, whatever, don't. But um, <laughs> here's the message of Revelation. You want to know what it means? Like, we win. There is no game of thrones. There is only children playing with the true king waiting for his arrival. The true king There's of kings. The, the king of kings, the lord of lords. There is one throne. Jerusalem, be glad. Rejoice, because your king has taken his throne, and he's coming back to gather up his faithful. 
And one day, the resurrection of Easter will become the universal resurrection when creation stops groaning, her king finally returns, and we all rise from the dead and go to meet him in the air, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, and then our joy will be complete. And we will no longer have an imperative to be glad amidst our penance and suffering, but rather it will just be our natural state. Yeah. Justin, do you have any parting words of practical advice for us for this? I actually want to close by reading the opening prayer, what we call the collect for the Feast of Latari Sunday. A priest friend of mine recommended a couple of years ago to me, read the collects, the opening prayers. So if you have a Magnificat or a Word Among Us subscription, you can find them there. Sometimes you can find them online too, depending on the feast. Or you can learn how to read a missile. Or you can learn how to read a missile. <laughs> Sorry. The collect always says something to us about what we're celebrating. Mm. And in ordinary time, the collect is then the same throughout the week. But in Advent, Lent, Easter, Christmas, the collect changes daily. And so it's actually, I think, a really helpful practice to meditate on what the collect is if you have some time to do so. So maybe we'll just close with this opening collect for the fourth Sunday of Lent. Pray with what it has to say to us as we prepare for Laetare Sunday. O God, who through your word reconciled the human race to yourself in a wonderful way, grant we pray that with prompt devotion and eager faith, the Christian people may hasten toward the solemn celebrations to come. That's Easter. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Go out and fight those clays or whatever. And remember to rejoice, be glad for spring is coming. Resurrection is coming. The kingdom of coming. Jesus is coming. I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Louis Pearson. And I'm Justin Aquila. And this has been 10,000 Things. Or ten, no, it hasn't. It's been 10,000 <laughs> Places. All right, have a good day. Bye. <laughs>